Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Box and One back with another episode because we're, believe it or not, not too far away from the NBA playoffs right now. And, and as we've done a lot of conversations on the podcast lately about the NBA draft and March Madness, college basketball season being at a fever pitch, it's time to pivot back a little bit more to the NBA. And that brings Matt Issa here on the pod. Matt, a, a good friend and, and co-writer with me over at SB Nation. Matt, How's everything going for you, my friend? It's going great. We were just talking about um, how to balance all the different things we like to do. Basketball related, you have to sacrifice sleep. Um, unfortunately, we're not like on the, what is it? LeBron James sleeps, what is it, 12 hours a day or something crazy like that. We're not on that regimen, unfortunately. No. We might get 12 hours every three days. But um, other than that, I'm doing great. Yeah, we we learn to cope with it after a while, right? We, we just kind of learn learn how this all works. And and we're thrilled to have Matt here today. We're going to be diving into the Western Conference play-in race because there is a jumble going on in the West with a ton of teams jockeying for positions. Some will make the playoffs outright, some will miss it altogether, and others will be scrapping for their lives in a one, maybe two game play-in situation. But before we get there, it's time for my pregame speech. And as we get to the stretch run of the NBA season, one thing that gets completely overlooked is the fact that so many teams have guys on them that are playing for their next contract, essentially fighting for and playing for their careers. We can't look at the remaining schedule of who each of these teams in the West or the East is going to play and just assume that it's played on paper. Oh, these guys are out of the playoff race and therefore it should be an easy win for my team who's jockeying for a position to be in the postseason. Cannot line anybody up based on the schedule. The Charlotte Hornets. They beat the Dallas Mavericks twice last weekend. San Antonio Spurs are playing some really scrappy basketball. And and the thing that those teams have in common are guys that are fighting for their NBA careers in their next contract. Teo Maladon for Charlotte. Dennis Smith Jr. there. Both of those guards have been really scratching and clawing now that uh, LaMelo Ball is out of the lineup for Charlotte. In San Antonio, Sandro Mamukelishvili, Devontae Graham, Keita Bates-Jop. These are guys that might not see the floor very much if it weren't for a late season opportunity here. And they're trying to seize that by going head to head with some of these teams. We also have younger franchises that are trying to avoid being drafted over there. These are guys that are carving out a long-term future for themselves. You know, Orlando has won four of their last five games and trying to blend all of these young pieces together. They're trying to stay insanely competitive through this process and maybe even sneak into that play in picture in the Eastern Conference. But look, you cannot just look at things on paper. You're missing an important aspect if you do. So many teams in the playoff picture are actually the ones that are more likely to ease on off of the gas pedal during the stretch run of the season. They're prioritizing rest and health. It's everybody else who's young and scrappy and has all of those individual players, whether they're veterans or youngsters, that are trying to just carve out whatever their next role is going to be. So, Matt. I use that as an intro here to to just dive in deep for the Western Conference. And there's too many teams for us to really do a major, major deep dive on. So we've set some rules for our conversations around the play-in as we record this here on Wednesday evening. We're going to have five minutes on my trusty little phone timer here uh, to talk about each of these teams that are within two or three games of the play-in on either side. They can be a little bit farther up or a little bit farther down the standings, essentially four games in the loss column that separate all of them. 
five minutes on the clock. And once that five minute discussion is up, we're going to have our superb guest, Matt, put on the spot a little bit as I ask him one question that's kind of burning in my mind about this franchise. So we're going to ignore really the top teams in the West right now. And I, I chose to put Phoenix in that tier. I know that they're not clearly out of that playing picture, but just with health that they might have with a guy like Kevin Durant. And uh, I'm choosing the, that's an editorial decision that we're going with here. Not going to talk much about the Phoenix Suns tonight, but we'll start here, Matt, if you're ready to go with the Los Angeles Clippers. So are we good to put five minutes on the clock? Oh, I think we're good to put five minutes on the clock. All right, let's run with it here. So Wednesday night, as we're recording this, Clippers are 40 and 36. They're kind of ahead of everybody else in that loss column right now. But Paul George has gotten down with an injury, and the details are a little bit vague about when or whether he's going to return. It's been a little bit of an up-and-down season altogether. Where are you at at the Clippers, and what type of damage can they do as they head into this postseason? Where am I at with these Clippers? Well, first of all, I'm going to I'm gonna say this. You're probably not going to like me for saying this, but, like, listeners will probably listen to this podcast and be like, well, I didn't learn any. Like, I don't feel like I know any more than I did before. And that's kind of like what the West is, especially yeah. this part right now, where it's just like, you really, we really need to see this bracket. Like, I need to see what this bracket looks like so you can kind of get a sense. It's going to be so much about matchups. Um, I think that, you know, as, as somebody who obviously coaches, coach spins, um, you know that like if if you if there's a severe gap in talent, it's going to be really hard for you to scheme against that. But like here we have this thing where I think it's there. There's a couple teams I think that have like that silver bullet talent that you know you it's going to be very hard to scheme against. But for the most part, I think it's really going to depend on like if you have the upper hand matchups wise, that can make all the difference. Um, and I think the Clippers are one of those teams where it's like. Who do they? I need to see who that first round matchup is. If they, if I see them play like the Kings or the Warriors, or um, who is the other team? The Nuggets. If I see one of those, it's like all they run all these crazy off ball actions, and you have these handoffs, and you're gonna have Kawhi going through all these off ball screens, and you got you know Batum yeah. going through off ball screens. Their personnel is not built for that, you know. Yeah. But I think it would if they played the Suns in the first round. I think it would shock a lot of people how competitive they can be with them. Like they have the kind of guys who can mess with Booker's cadence, who can get in Paul's grill, make drop hard on him. They have, you know, guys who could switch on Kevin Durant. They they can put them in the mud. So I, I'm really, it's really going to depend, especially with this team, who will they see in the first round? And um, another thing I wanted to mention that Russell Westbrook signing is looking pretty good right now. Cause that yeah. guy is like the perfect guy to, eat innings for you in the regular season. I don't want him playing a crazy amount of minutes in the playoffs, and I'm worried that he, he might get that in the first couple games of a series just because Lou is notorious for a questionable early series uh, lineup decisions. But in the regular season, that, that guy can eat innings for you, especially when somebody goes down. Yeah, so it's it's interesting with the Clippers and probably worth noting here. Like the the top three teams in the West seem pretty secure in the seeds that they have, Denver, Memphis, and Sacramento. Sacramento's in the three spot. They're five teams up on Phoenix, who's next and right behind them. So it does very much feel like those first three are going to be locked in the home court advantage they already are. The 4-5 matchup is going to be one that's really interesting because Phoenix is not out of reach for any of these teams. They're only a half game up on the Clippers as we're recording this right now. If those two teams meet in the four or five matchup, I agree. It's, it's really, 
it's going to be a fascinating one. But I just still wonder, you know, the Paul George question mark is, is a huge one here. And for me, I, I think even if the Clippers find themselves in a position where they're avoiding that play-in game or play-in tournament, is that going to be a team that, you know, Sacramento, Memphis, Denver, or Phoenix are really hoping to see just because they're not coming in at full strength? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, when I talk about this, I'm operating under the assumption that Paul George is going to be ready to go for the playoffs yeah. because you're going to hear me use this analogy a couple times because one of my buddies recently used it, and I just really like the way he used it, but um, – if Paul George isn't healthy, their goose is cooked. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not happening this year. Um, yeah. so I just I don't like um I know what happened against Utah a couple of years ago. They were able to come out of that series without Kawhi at the end, but this team's a little bit older. The style it's it's very similar to what it was back then, but the game has changed so much in just a couple of years, you know. I don't think that's gonna fly anymore. Um, so yeah, that's I think another thing I want to mention is that um I think more than any team we talk about today, it's going to be essential for them to get out of the play-in. I don't think they yeah. can survive a play-in. Ty Lue, what he does best is gets grows as the series goes on. Yes. You know, he's, yeah. I mean, I don't know what his record is in game ones, but it's not pretty. Um, and I think what he's best at, his strengths are not suitable for the variance of a play-in game. And yeah. That just that's just my take. Yeah, that they'll be much better off if he can adjust throughout a series. I think yeah. he's proven that. Uh, whether it's against Dallas, whether it's against the, the Utah Jazz, I know that's our timer right here. But it, you know, if there's one thing for for Ty Lue moving forward, it's you know, does he have enough uh, chess pieces left on the board to be able to make some of those tactical decisions through a seven game series? So here's my one question okay. for you, because this very much leads into it. Can they knock anybody off in the playoffs if they do not have Paul George? No, the goose, the goose is cooked, man. It's cooked without Paul George. There's this not, unless something crazy happened where the Clippers were the fourth seed and the Pelicans were the fifth seed and Zion Williamson wasn't back. I don't think, I don't think it's happening. Yeah. So they're going to be, like we said, very matchup dependent. One of those teams that we're really hoping can make it out of the play in because that's going to give them their best opportunity to, to thrive and succeed. They've got a lot of veterans on this team. Like they're, they're built to try to win. Now there's not going to be much surprise element for them about what to expect in a playoff series. And, and I think that's why they might be a good matchup for Phoenix in that regard where, you know, they'll hang, they'll not be intimidated by the star power and the offensive juggernaut that Phoenix has the capability of turning into but it is hard to envision what this team is is going to be able to accomplish without Paul George. And I'm not a big legacy guy. Like I don't want to look ahead and talk about what that might mean, whether the Clippers are a failure. That's just not how I try to frame the game of basketball. I'm just hoping for his, for Paul George's sake, for Kawhi's sake, that they can get healthy and, and bring a, a really entertaining group into the postseason. Yeah. I just want to say this. Um, you mentioned the chess piece thing. I think again, George has got to be healthy, but I think they did a really good job at the trade deadline of getting it, Lou, his pieces. Like you could see it all going on. You could see, you know, there's differences between Plumlee and Zubac. It might yes. not, might not show up like immediately, but there's differences, little small differences that can make or break a series. There's, there's differences to having a guy like Aaron Gordon as opposed to Luke Kennard, you know, excuse me, Eric Gordon. If they had Aaron Gordon, I would just be a completely <laughs> different conversation, but Eric Gordon, but that's just my, that's my rant on it. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think we've seen time and time again, Ty Lue is best when he has one or two superstars and then can just put a, have a blank canvas that he puts around them and figure out what the best five-man rotations and lineups and strategies are going to be. And I, I think this is a roster that's versatile enough to be able to do that. So we're ready for team number two here. Five minutes on the clock. Again, the Golden State Warriors are defending NBA champions 40 and 37 as we record right now, up to sixth in the West, but they still have no Andrew Wiggins. Uh, it's been a night and day team at home and on the road throughout the entire season, but they're actually first in pace and they're taking more three pointers than any team in the NBA. I don't know if that surprises you to hear. That really surprised me that they take more threes per game than anybody else. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I actually, I had this similar epiphany. I, I want to say, who are they playing? When they played the Timberwolves a couple weeks ago yeah. when Nas Reed went off, and I was just looking through, like, basketball reference during one of the dead balls, and um, and I was like, because, like, I think, like, you know, me and you, we're so deep in the weeds like we, you know, you ever have that problem where like you watch so much basketball, you you don't even know who's like the best team in the league right now, like yes. standings wise. Hundred yeah, percent. So like we're, we're so deep in the weeds that we forget like the like what everyone like all like I hate to say it, but, like all casual fans know the Warriors for is like perimeter shooting. So like I looked at the three point um attempts and I'm like, well, they're first. Wait, what? And I was thinking about it. I'm like, wait, they're the Golden State Warriors. Of course they're first. They like revolutionized <laughs> the three point shot. So yeah, I guess that what is surprising, but it's not. Yeah, look, it, it feels like it's been a long year for Golden State for so many different we- reasons. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about Draymond Green and Jordan Poole drama. We haven't seen Andrew Wiggins for a while for, uh, you know, the organization being very tight-lipped about what's going on there and probably for good reason. Mm-hmm. There's so much that we dealt with around the trade deadline with James Wiseman and what is it going to look like? Are they going to make some sort of an upgrade? And like quietly – this team is poised if they can get back to full strength to be the same juggernaut that we're used to seeing from them in the playoffs. I mean, they've got Gary Payton, the second back, who is a fantastic perimeter defender. I really like Dante DiVincenzo on this team. I really, really like what he brings to the table. Another live wire guard dribbler who knows his role, spaces the floor and is competitive on the other end. Like I, I like a lot of the individual pieces. I'm still worried rotationally. I mean, this is, Seems like a common theme, whether it's New Orleans or the Clippers or Golden State. They might not come into the playoffs at full strength. And that's a huge reason why they're battling for their lives in the play-in right now. But if there's one team that I would trust, even if they don't have this important piece in a guy like Wiggins, if there's one team I would trust to go farther, it's probably Golden State. Yeah, I think the one thing I think they have in their favor that I think we underestimate is – continuity like if you think about it in the beginning of the year if you think about minnesota's training camp golden state's training camp like people don't understand like you have a finite amount of time as a coach yeah. to install your principles install the little wrinkles your progressions all that stuff think about the timberwolves you're bringing in rudy gobert you know in the offseason you lose in vando you're um i can't think off the top of my head who else they lost but that's a whole different – you have to spend so much time just going over the ground rules, the basics, your basic principles, where the Warriors is just like, plug. okay, this is what we do. We know that. We don't have to worry about our base. Now, like, how can we expand on it? How do – like, it dawned on me last year when they played the Celtics in the finals and Steph Curry was the big defender in the pick and roll and he knew to drop. He knew to go into drop coverage. Like, that is such a te- – that's like – you ever seen The Wire? Yeah. 
Yeah, The Wire. I was reading something the other day that the creator of The Wire, he had on the fake newspapers that they would use in the show, he had them write legitimate news stories in those, like, you know what I mean? So, like, that, the greats, the greats always have that kind of attention to detail. And that's this Warriors team has, thanks to the continuity. And, like, we kind of talked about when they're right, I was thinking about their eight man playoff rotation. I mean, it's Curry, Clay, Andrew Wiggins, Draymond, Looney, Poole, Dante, Gary Payton. Like, that eight, that's they can go against anyone but the thing is like are they going to have that eight if Wiggins isn't there I mean I'm going to use it again the goose is cooked I think if the Wiggins isn't there at this point and then yeah. another thing I'm I'm thinking about sorry to cut you off but like another thing I'm thinking about is like has the league kind of caught up to this like bizarre offense? I mean look at the Kings have done like they've kind of been able to replicate really well what the Warriors do offensively. So that's just another thing going on in my head. Yeah. I mean, teams are catching up in terms of pace and three point attempts and, and you have more better shooters around the league, but there's still no Steph Curry. There's still no Draymond green anywhere else. And I keep defaulting to that. What, what I think about for golden state in terms of lineup construction is they've always been so good when they go small, when they put Draymond green at the five. But one of the reasons they've been able to do that is they have so many decent plug and play wings, guys like Iguodala, guys like Wiggins, Harrison Barnes back in the day. When you have all of those different chess pieces and people that you can use, then you can go small and you can match up and switch and play so many different lineups because you're not going to drop off at the point of attack against other wings defensively. I don't know if I have that same trust in this group. Uh, Jonathan Kaminga has had a up and down year, some really good moments where he's turned into a good slasher. He understands his role and has embraced how to play that at Golden State. But down the stretch run of the season here, I've noticed a lot of teams that are playing them and particularly him by sagging off of him on the perimeter and daring him to shoot more. And and that's going to be a real struggle when he and Draymond are on the floor together and trying to go small. It almost negates some of the offensive advantage that you might have. So I, I worry not necessarily that they're going to be cooked if they don't have Andrew Wiggins, but that they become a little bit easier to guard or less versatile with some of the lineups that Steve Kerr can put out there just because they don't have that one other wing that can play effectively on both ends of the floor. So, Matt, I'm really going to just ask you one question here with Golden State. What do you think is going to be more indicative of their postseason outlook here? Is it the winning experience that they've had in the past and last year by being the NBA champions? Or are we thinking that the inconsistencies, the struggles, the lack of continuity in their rotation is really going to be something that brings them down to a level we're not used to seeing from the Warriors in the playoffs? Okay, so I'm kind of torn here because, like, you know, I did um, some research in the beginning of the year on uh, the historic, like, the statistical indicators in terms of, like, offensive rating, defensive rating for teams that make the conference finals, which is, like, you know, obviously their goal here. And it's usually you have, like, a elite world-beating offense or an elite world-beating defense or you're, like, top 10-ish in both areas. And the Warriors right now, if you look at their statistical indicators, they're middle of the pack. But – I'll say this, um, there's been like, you know, there's a historical precedent of teams, you know, like say, you know, the Lakers when they were in their three-peat um, of just kind of being able to kick it up a notch um, in the second season, I mean, in the second season. So uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to trust my gut over their statistical indicators this year because of how weird it's been with everybody in the lineup. And I'm going to say that I think 
they have another gear that you can go to and that their precedent's going to um, aid them in that. I've never known if there's a, a way to evaluate if winning experience or playoff experience ever can be tangibly felt. This might be the closest example we can ever get to it with this Golden State Warriors team. I agree. So, so you brought up the Minnesota Timberwolves in that last section about kind of coaching and being able to, to put some, uh, some continuity together in a short amount of time. So our five minutes are on the clock for Minnesota. They're tied with Golden State in the loss column, 39 and 37. Carl Anthony Towns came back last week, and they're 2-0 and in the games that he's played since. And as we're recording on a four-game win streak, uh, really, really good kind of uptick from them recently. But here's the thing, Matt. They're only 12 and 11 this year in the games that Cat has played. They're not really a better team when they have him and Gobert on the floor. They're just different and more talented. And like you mentioned, this whole experiment of trying to play two bigs together, they haven't been able to do so a ton this year. And they did not have a lot of time with a, a really short training camp to be able to install all of their principles on both ends of the floor that are really needed to get them going. So I, I'm just curious as to what your level of trust is in the two big front court and the talent and the way that this team is made up to be able to gain some of those answers on the fly in a postseason environment. Yeah. Um, so based on the information we have now, I'm going to say I, I don't trust it yeah. mainly because, you know, I think both of these guys are, they're not like, they're not like a plug and play on defense where you can just kind of plug them into any ecosystem and they'll fit. Like you need to construct your ecosystem around both these guys. And the problem is they need like different types of constructions. Like with Rudy Gobert, he's that traditional drive center where cat you want to go maybe at the level or you want to head, you want to trap. Um, you want to play more like of an aggressive defensive style. I say from what we know now, a sample, a piece of evidence we don't have at this time, something that they couldn't really try because you know, they were kind of obligated to playing Russell where I don't feel like they feel that same type of obligation with Conley, but I'm curious, especially with the leap he's taken as a playmaker, what it looks like if you move Edwards to the, the point guard, you put Jane McDaniels at the two, and then you put in like, you know, say Prince or Kyle Anderson at the three and then have those two at the four and five. Is that enough? Do you have enough like length there, enough athleticism to kind of make up for their shortcomings? And uh, that's, so that's my lineup. Yeah. Yeah, that is huge. And but the thing is with Jaden McDaniels, I mean, he's got the point of, a point of attack chops to make it work, you know, and he's got all the versatility to make it work. So I'm curious to see that before I say I'm out on the two of them together for like long stretches of times, long stretches of time in this particular season because they haven't had the continuity like we talked about. I, I think the Mike Conley addition was a really important one for mm-hmm. – for Minnesota. And it's not just because he fits a little bit better as being an extra pick and roll creator, somebody who's a little bit better with the ball in their hands and passing than a guy like D'Angelo Russell was his veteran experience matters. He was an effective teammate of Rudy Gobert's in Utah. Those two seem to have really good chemistry on both ends of the floor. And I, I think Conley's going to play a huge role for them as we go into the postseason of being a steadying force. I do wonder if they do try to get creative, if Chris Finch, who is one of the more creative minds that we have in the NBA, is going to be more experimental with something like that. I wonder if they'll have any minutes where both Gobert and Towns are off the floor. 
And if they don't, if they have, you know, the, the Gobert unit, the Towns unit, and then they close with both of them together, I really wonder if they can have the defensive game plan tailored to postseason success, because that's a lot of changes and a lot of mental processing on the perimeter players to be aware of who they're sharing the floor with and what's being asked of them at any particular time. A really, really unique situation with the way that this roster is constructed in Minnesota. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is like, okay, so say if this, say my little experience experiment doesn't play out or just doesn't work out. Right. Yeah. If you take that away, this team has, I mean, they're like the sexy team to talk about right now. If you go on Twitter, that's like the team to, yeah. to be high on and say, Oh man, you, nobody knows this, but Minnesota's got all this versatility now. I'm like, eh, everyone kind of figured it out after the one million tweet. But they do have a lot of versatility. I mean, you can go Gobert, drop center. You can go Cat. You could run this aggressive scheme. You could play small ball with Kyle Anderson at the five. You have Conley. You know, we didn't even mention Conley in that closing lineup. All the different things you could do there. Like the injury to Cat has like unlocked a lot for them in terms of the versatility my worry is if if the lineup like i have suggested isn't it i wonder what's their fastball because scheme versatility is important but at the end of the day you still need to have that one that one thing that's just like that's your best punch you know like with the warriors for a long time it was the hamptons five or the death lineup that was their best punch and for a long time that was the best punch you could throw so like that's what i'm just trying to figure out with this team if they have a haymaker in their bag. And I think they're trying to figure that out. I wonder if it's going to be Anthony Edwards, because I was really impressed with how he rose his level of play last year in the postseason when they were going head to head with Memphis. Like he, he raises level defensively. He can attack a lot more uh, offensively and feel like he's, he's that takeover option on the offensive end of the floor. But he looks really relieved to have uh, Towns back in that lineup, no doubt about it. My one question for you, Matt on the Minnesota Timberwolves, will their minutes with Cat and Gobert together be a net positive for them in a postseason or play-in setting? I got to stop answering these questions before you ask them. That's what I get for looking at the outline. But um, I'm going to say that negative Yeah. Um, uh, kind of for all the reasons we talked about. From what I know now about this team, that's what I'm going to say in that negative. If it's going to be a net negative, I have a really difficult time seeing them win any postseason series. If it's a one-off game, I'm going to struggle to see that. I don't know. And that's why I say, like, you know, they're in – that's the thing about um, the regular season. You go through these ebbs and flows where it's like, uh, you know, if you get if you win four games in a row, everyone's like, wait, this team's sneaky dangerous. we got to watch out for them. If you lose four games in a row, you have a bad weekend, hint, hint you have a bad weekend against a really bad team that's tanking, then everyone's kind of down on you. But um, as we'll talk about a little later, I think I'll surprise people with, uh, I really, I don't know. I'm done with the Timberwolves for right now. Yeah. Look, it's an 82 game season. I don't think you can overreact to any stretch of games, four or five, six games, however long it is more than any other, just because they're happening now right before the postseason. If it's not majorly impacted by, lineup or rotation changes due to injury or, or things that are definitely going to impact you in the playoffs. I agree. I think it tends to be a little bit of an overreaction sometimes, but there is another streaking team in the Western conference right now. And it's the new Orleans Pelicans uh, before their loss on Tuesday night to the golden state warriors and a pretty fun game. Uh, they had won five in a row. They're 38 and 38 and squarely in the middle of this entire uh, play-in situation as they sit 
in the eight spot. There's so many different ways it can go. They're a game and a half back from being in sixth. They're also really one game away from missing the play in entirely. And oh, by the way, they don't have Zion Williamson. Matt, what, what the hell do you make of this Pelicans team in season? Because it's been a weird one. Yeah, I mean, as you know, I, I um, cover the team for fans cited. I watch way, unfortunately, way too many Pelicans games. It'd be a lot more fortunate if Zion was there. But um, yeah. I promise this is the last time I'm going to say this. But it need it really needs to be said. If he, if Williamson doesn't come back this year, consider that goose cooked. That is done. So that I mean, this truly is like one of the five worst offenses in basketball without Zion. It's tough. It just, it doesn't, the thing is like, I'm not that kind of guy who's like, oh, you can't take any mid-range shots. Like, no, what BI does, what CJ does, even to an extent what Valanciunas does, important, especially in the playoffs. But the thing is, it needs to be mixed with the high value scoring, the high efficiency scoring that Zion both converts and creates. I mean, he, he's, you know, a monster getting to the rim, monster getting the free throw line, creates so many open threes. You don't need me to tell you the story. You know it. But, um, yeah, other than Utah, who I'm – we're going to talk about, but I'm, I'm, I'm considering them out of this. I'm, I'm putting a pin in them. I think they've, they've kind of given up. Other than Utah, though, I think every team we talk about right now, the Pelicans without Zion is, like, significantly worse than. Um, now, if Zion does come back – we talked about how the injury to Cat helped Minnesota establish some versatility. Well, the injury to Zion has helped New Orleans really establish their defensive identity. Um, I think Willie Green is one of the best coaches we have in this game. Um, I, I have like forever have ingrained that um, that speech he gave right before the start of the fourth quarter in the playing game against the Clippers. It was like, uh, what did he say? This is what we live for. This is what we live for. I, I imagine you you give a similar speech at, <laughs> at the, tail, the tail end of big games. But um, he's got them playing like really well defensively. You can see the, the efforts there, multiple efforts. They're communicating better. Um, the addition of Josh Richardson has been huge. huge. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think if, if Williamson comes back, he's like 80, 85%. I think they're better off because they've established now a defensive infrastructure where they could slot Williamson in. And yeah, he's still going to be a negative for sure. But they have a better supporting cast around him now and just, yeah, the ecosystem is better. So tell me if, if this makes sense for New Orleans, because I watch them at much more of an arm's length than you do, mm. is that they're a team that has a bunch of mid-range to long-range bucket getters and spot-up three-point shooters who's missing their one guy that gets a paint touch and can just create easy looks for everybody else. And as a result of that, the offense doesn't generate a ton of rim pressure which makes it really hard for them to be a reliable threat to get those high efficiency, easy buckets, but they are really connected on the defensive end of the floor. And it's not as much of a scheme problem that a guy like Willie green can fix on offense because he just doesn't have the ponies right now who can go out there and live in the lane. So it's almost like they're better served doubling down on that defensive as end and, and really having the versatility with guys like Josh Richardson with Herb Jones, Trey Murphy, playing around Brandon Ingram, having a little bit more of that lineup versatility you can bring at the five. Okay, are we going to go with Jonas or are we going to go with Larry Nance and try to play a little bit more smaller, up-tempo, be able to do some different things with Nance at the five? I think that New Orleans is a well-constructed roster that 
falls apart pretty quickly when they don't have that one guy who can live in the lane and create a ton of easy looks for everybody else on offense. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's one of the few guys in the NBA where he could take your offense single-handedly from a top five offense to a bottom five offense. It, it's really that, but, um, and I agree with you on the doubling down thing. Cause think about the trend we talked about where it's like, how do you go deep in the playoffs? You either elite offense as we're, we're going to talk about this with another team in a second, I've been alluding to, but you go elite offense, elite defense or you're balanced and without Williamson they can't have balance because they're not yep. going to have a, a good offense they're not even going to have an average offense you yep. know but and that's why I'm an advocate personally and I feel like you would dislike this take because you see the utility in having a guy like JV in your starting lineup but I'm an advocate for just pulling this guy from give him the Marcus Morris man pull him from the rotation he he, he, he doesn't bring he doesn't do it for me I think yeah. go Nance and go small ball five that should be your look unless you're playing like a bruiser team, like, you know, the Grizzlies or something. Yeah. I, I tend to like Jonas. I think that he's a, a, a net positive for a lot of the time that he's out there, particularly because when you're switching, you don't, uh, you need a rebounder in there a lot of the time. So if they can switch and be more aggressive on the perimeter one through four, having a reliable guy and drop coverage who's within 15 feet of the basket to clean up the mess is something that I, I think gets overlooked at times. But w- what struck me, Matt, about, New Orleans lately. Obviously, we, we mentioned at the top, they won five out of their last six. And I'm not sure how much I trust this late season surge because you know who those five wins are over is Houston, San Antonio, Charlotte, the aforementioned Paul George-less Clippers, and Portland, who is in kind of shutdown mode right now. So let me ask you this. This little late season surge that we're seeing where they're now back into this play in conversation after being on the outside looking in about two weeks ago. Is this more about them figuring out to lean into that defensive identity and just making enough shots? Or does it say more about that little reprieve in the schedule that they had over the last two weeks to be able to give them that bump that we're seeing right now? If things would have went differently last night against Warriors, I might I might be more optimistic, but I, I'm pretty sure it's the latter. You mentioned that murderous row of opponents they had. That Clippers game, their most impressive win in that five-game win streak, Trey Murphy hit 10 threes. Trey Murphy's yeah. a, a good, a very good shooter. But anytime you have a guy hit double-digit threes, that's probably not something you could sustain over the course of a like a seven game series, the whole team, I think shot in like the mid to high forties. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but um, yeah. So they had a lot of shooting luck against the Clippers in that game. And another thing we didn't mention before that five game win streak, they, um, they were the recipient of a Jabari Smith junior game winner knocked in Najee Marshall's grill. So no, I think, like I said, if this team doesn't have Zion, it's just, I, I would take pretty much any team they would play, even in a single game against over them. So as we keep moving down this list, I see a little bit of pessimism about a lot of these teams, you know, with their cooking of geese and, and all of the, no, no more goose cooking, no more goose cooking. And then all of the injuries that are kind of going on here, like we could very much end up in a situation where no Andrew Wiggins, no Paul George, no Zion Williamson at all. And a couple of these teams squaring off and having to win. And, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned the Trey Murphy night, and Jabari Smith getting hot against them. Like individual game shooting variance is impossible to account for. So when you get into these one game play in situations, I tend to think that the team who just shoots better is going to win. 
and, and it's it's not as much about scheme and taking things away. It matters. It's important. That's what coaches do. But that might not be what controls the outcome of a game. Now, across a best of seven series, you have enough time and runway to make up for that variance. And I agree. I think New Orleans is probably one of the least capable teams of making a run to push anybody else in a best of seven series because their offensive firepower without Zion is just going to be very different. It's, it's going to be a very, very jump shot, heavy, easy to interrupt kind of flow. Uh, and the thing is, even if they just to put a pin in this, yeah. even if they do double down on defense, we talked about like the fastball, your strongest punch, that's not going to do it. It's not, their defense is, is really good, very improved. And, it's the kind of defense that'll be able to hold down the fort when Zion is there, but it's not, it's not something that you can like, you can hang your hat on and that could carry you through a series, you know? Yep. Yep. Well, if there is one team that people are starting to really hop on the bandwagon of in this play in conversation, I know Minnesota has been the the team of the flavor of the week thus far, but by my measure, I see a lot of people loving the Los Angeles Lakers right now. And I think for good reason, they're 37 and 38 right now, 10 and six since the all-star break, which LeBron has missed a decent amount of games out of that stretch. They have developed a true defensive identity with Jared Vanderbilt and Anthony Davis playing the four or five. They've reshaped their roster on the fly this year in a really smart way by bringing in a little bit more perimeter shooting around LeBron and that versatile defensive tandem up front. I really like this Lakers team, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, we alluded to it a little bit earlier with the other team in Los Angeles. You said, you know, Ty Lue likes to have the two stars and then bevy of chess pieces. I think that's the the ideal team building. I think after we saw the super team Golden State Warriors quite literally fall apart because of injuries and just taking, you know, taking all those hits. I think we kind of realized like this is probably from like a, a risk management perspective, the safest way of knowing about it, you know, try pray to God, your two stars stay healthy. And then you have this revolving door of chess pieces that can kind of get you through different matchups. And, you know, I think that's like, that's what the Lakers are. And I mean, it's, it's like you said, like they, they had three huge problems at the trade deadline. This, this was a very flawed team at the trade deadline. They, they couldn't, couldn't shoot. They could not shoot. They had no spacing. Okay. So what did they do? Bring in Michael Beasley and D'Angelo Russell. They couldn't create outside of LeBron James. Okay. So what do they do is, you know, bring in D'Angelo Russell and Austin Reeves gets healthy again. And it's like, holy <laughs> and, shit, Austin and, Reeves can hoop. And shoots 50 free throws a game. That'll, yeah. that'll help a little bit too. Yeah. I thought, hey man, he, he earned some of those free throws. He's, he's been good. He's been really, he earned, really good. He's, he's been good. There's a limitation to that kind of player, but he's been good. And then point three with the defense, right? With yes, Jared Vanderbilt. exactly. It was like they were leaning too much on a guy in Anthony Davis who, fingers crossed, I think he's got he's got enough enough juice to make it through a postseason run. But you can't you can't reasonably ask a guy who's as beat up as he is to be your anchor for eighty two games and then go into a playoff series. Jared Vanderbilt takes so much um, off of his plate, and then also the two of them together is just like this. I mean, I don't want to call yeah. it futuristic because the the shooting is you know. It's it's design, it's, you know, left on tail, but very futuristic in terms of all the different things they can do defensively. Yeah. Yeah. They can trap, they can switch, they can play drop, they can 
pin shots to the backboard from the weak side. They love to get out and transition, both of them. Like whenever Jared Vanderbilt is on the floor, I think of Heath Ledger's Joker. Like let's inject a little chaos. Like he's just, he's the king of anarchy in the way that he lets them play in transition. And look, the playoffs are very much a half court centric game. But if you are as versatile as they are on the defensive end, you tend to have the advantage by being able to play in transition more than your opponent. And while they're better suited than they were before the deadline to be a really good half-court offensive team, I don't think that they have as much offensive firepower as maybe some of the teams at the top of the West, a Phoenix, uh, Denver right now with the way that Jokic is just playing all together. So they're going to need to be one of the best teams throughout the entire postseason on the defensive end of the floor. But I think with Vanderbilt and Davis together, they really can be. Like, for example, and I know this is kind of a little bit too nitty gritty for a five minute segment, but we're going to we're going to hit this. This is this is the nitty gritty crowd here on the Box of One podcast. Like, you don't know who you're talking to, Matt. Let's do it. So earlier this year, um, the Philadelphia 76ers concocted something that a lot of teams have been using, like the man. I think they call it like the man spy technique against Jokic, where you'll have like, you know, a bigger Braun, like bustier guy, bustier is not the word. Put PJ Tucker on. Yeah, the PJ Tucker, put him on Jokic, have him bang with him in the paint, and then you have your spy rim protector. And I mean, this is just one team in the Denver Nuggets, but it just shows like what having all these role players does for you. But you can do that with Anthony Davis as, you know, the guy banging with Jokic, banging, and then you could put Jared Vanderbilt like as a little spy, an agent of chaos to catch a spin move, to mess with his timing. And then the cool thing about Jared Vanderbilt is if Jokic is going to, you know, if he passes out, he if he sees you trying to catch a spin move, passes out, he's fast enough where he could he has a chance at recovering. You know what I mean? He has a chance at getting back. So it's just things like that. You could you could think of something small like that for a lot of the teams in the West. And I think they have a lot of a lot of different ways to counter like I can pretty easily tell you the teams the Clippers will do well against and the teams will do poorly against. It would take me a little bit more thinking to figure out the weak spots for the Lakers. You know, I, they're there. They're there, of course. But um, I think they have more more different styles. Um, KOC always likes to say they have more different, like, relievers in the bullpen. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And, and look, championship experience, if we're going to say that counts for anything, LeBron, nobody has more in the entire freaking world than LeBron James. And Anthony Davis got a ring under his belt this is it's going to come a lot for me down to Darvin Ham and I'm really interested to see what type of adjustments and matchups and, and how creative he can be in a postseason environment I think this has been as much about just managing the roster that he has and trying to get by and stay healthy and and you know figure out what okay what's the best eight-man healthy lineup we can throw out there tonight but when he has a full deck of cards what is it that he throws out there and how does he adjust to some of the punches thrown by an opponent? I would not want to run into the Los Angeles Lakers in a one game play in situation just because they have LeBron and AD. But let me ask you this beyond the play in. Are they the most feared team in this group of those franchises that are in danger of being in the play in? Are they the most feared group for a Western Conference contender to run into? Well, especially with the new information that came out about the free throw rates, um, I'm sure opposing teams are, are very worried about what referees might try to do. Kidding, kidding. But um, it's them or the Warriors. I need to see. I need to see what's 
if the Warriors, if they have their eight and they're relatively healthy, I still think, I mean, because yeah, yeah, AD and LeBron have the pedigree, but you know, all the other pieces that are, are still kind of, we, we haven't seen Austin Reeves in a playoff series. We don't know what it's going to look like when he's seeing all that length and people are gapping him on his drives and all this and that. You know, Troy Brown is, he's been awesome in the regular season, but I've, you know, you could point yeah. to numerous players over the years who've had great regular seasons, then the playoffs, you know, when there's advanced scouting going on and one scout's like, wait a second, like Troy Brown Jr. is actually not as good of a man defender as we thought. You know what I mean? Let's poke at him. And then he looks like a, he looks unplayable. You know what I mean? So um, I'm going to say the Warriors, if they have all their, all their ponies, but if they don't, if they're missing even one pony, give me the Lakers. Yeah. I, I don't know. I might lean for the Lakers because I just, I've learned less in the hard way for, too many years in my life like don't bet against that lebron james guy so yeah i guess you're right there we've got three teams left here matt to kind of dive into let's go to the oklahoma city thunder now we are uh, a game back a little bit further from who we've talked about in that loss column they're 37 and 39 supremely young i don't think anyone anticipated that in a year when they did not have chet holmgren healthy at all that they would be in a position to be a postseason team, but they play really, really hard. They have an identity of being big positionally, smart with a good basketball IQ, and relentlessly attacking the paint. I think that it's been one of the best coaching jobs that we've seen this entire entire season. What do you expect to see from the Thunder down the stretch here? Because at this point, like their hat is in the ring. They're going for it. They want to get these postseason reps. Do you think that they're a legitimate team in a play-in or even a playoff situation? First of all, shout out to our mutual Twitter friend Bowser to Bowser. I love I love those like breakdowns he puts out about their defense. Yeah. Um, another thing I want to say for those people who are like primarily, I know you watch a lot of college basketball, but like for the mm-hmm. people who are like kind of strictly like oh, I, mean, I don't like watching the NBA, like everybody plays the same way, they're starting to be right about it, but. If you if you that's the only reason you don't like NBA basketball and you would watch it if there was distinct styles, watch the Oklahoma City Thunder because they defend yeah. and they play offense in a way that is just like completely different than everyone else. And I, I love it so much. But um to answer your question, so I know they have like really good like net rating indicators and all that stuff, and they play really well when Shea's healthy. Um, but I've always been hesitant of those teams where they kind of squeeze out every every last like drop like in the regular season because like the playoffs is all about you know game one both of you come in with your base maybe a little bit of adjustments early but it's all about like growing as the series gets on and you know progress like you got to be able to hit another gear another level one reason why like a guy like Anthony Edwards does so good in playoffs because he has something I call like silver bullet athleticism where it's like you you can't scheme against that first step you know you you could try but it's going to be tough or you couldn't scheme against Shaq in the paint. Like, you know, there's an extent to how much you could scheme against it. Yeah. I don't know if you can and, scheme against Jay's first step though. He yeah. So that was fast. He is. That's the one that I want to see. I need to see Shay in the play. I've always been the kind of guy yeah. I think as you should be like, you want to see a superstar get some, some reps in the playoffs before you start to project how they'll do. So I, they do have that, but I'm talking like overarching as a team. I'm worried. Like, for example, they run, they run a ton of like brush screens, ghost screens, guard to guard screening, right? And a guy like Jalen Williams, somebody I just recently scouted. Jalen Williams, what's the book on him in terms of his limitations? I don't think he's got that explosive of a first step. He's a great like vertical leaper. I think he can really elevate, but his first step leaves a little bit to desire for me. 
he capitalizes on those like moments of confusion that happen from like those you know those guard to guard screens because it does take a second are we going to switch it like what are we doing here you're going to fight over the top of it you know but if you have like a week to to prep for guard to guard screens and you figure it out you button it up pretty good where there's no longer that that moment of confusion and then it's like okay well what do they do next they don't run a whole lot of other stuff outside of the, the basic drive and kick and that's a credit to coach Mark, uh, I can't pronounce his last name, but yeah, Dagno. Mark yeah. Dagno. That's a credit to him for understanding, like, hey, I have a young group of guys who probably can't, I can't run, like, sophisticated X and O's with. So, like, let's simplify the offense and play to their strengths. But that's the trade-off is, like, once, you know, once they figure it out, like, what, what's your next move, you know? I think the – what I keep going back to is part of their identity is playing really hard every single night competing on the defensive end. And you can take that one of two ways that they're so ingrained at doing that because it's what they've had to do to put themselves in this position that you can bank on them being a good defensive team. You can bank on them just playing really aggressively in the playoffs. The flip side of that coin is that now that the bright lights are on, other teams tend to raise their competitiveness to that level where they're not kind of, I don't want to say sleepwalking, but going on a little bit less than hundred percent speed through a long daunting regular season. And when the other teams raise their level, their competitiveness, their energy, they're dialing into some of those scouting things. Like you talked about with brush screens, you're trying to exploit individual personnel areas. Does this team have the experience to respond? Do they have guys who kind of know what to do? if they come out and get punched in the mouth. Cause I don't think that they've gotten punched in the mouth as a team very much this year. There might be a perception around the league where they're still a little bit under respected for who they are individually and collectively, but in a postseason environment, whether it's one game or through a series, I'm really curious to see if their, their level of intensity doesn't stand out as much because other teams are bringing it to the table. So that one last question as our timer did go off here is to really talk about if you think there are other ways other than the brush screens that you talked about that they would be guarded or respond to being guarded in a postseason environment. Do you, do you think there are other areas that you would kind of factor in on if you were going against the Thunder? Um, okay, so I think Bowser, Bowser to Bowser does a really good job of talking about all the read and react defense and the switching and how they use their length. Um, the thing with young teams is they make mistakes on defense. And this young team makes a lot less mistakes than like the Rockets or the Pistons, but they do make mistakes. So I think it's about kind of, if I'm like a scout for the other team, it's kind of like, okay, is there a trend to what kind of like switches they might be a little bit late on or what kind of little actions they might just hesitate for a moment on. And then you, you start to exploit those you start to poke at that. And then the other thing is like, they don't play it like a, I mean, they play Jalen Williams, but you know, he's not like this big, like um, robust, like guy in the middle. So like, I know um, the, oh, so I've watched them play the 76ers both times they played them this year. Right. And you know, of course, who's the big guy who plays for the Philadelphia 76ers. Right. Yeah. And in that, in that first game, they're doing their usual, you know, they're doubling aggressively on him. They're really sinking in on him. And, Philly had this just like ridiculously hot first quarter where they were just nailing threes. They build up a 20 point lead. And for the rest of the game, it's just a 20 point lead. They play like even, but they have that 20 point lead. And the second time, um, the threes aren't really 
going for Philly. I, I think they, they they tightened it up a little bit, but still, like they just they weren't hitting threes. And I'm pretty sure OKC comes away with the winner. Don't don't quote me on that one. But um, so it's like that's like something where it's like if they're doubling aggressively, if you can like maximize the amount of space you're able to get on those kickouts, depending on where you place guys, you might be able to beat them that way with the threes. So, I mean, that's just like the things that are kind of going through my head right now. Yeah, I wonder if they're susceptible to being beat a little bit more inside physically just because they are smaller of a team. I would also super physical with Isaiah Joe. I'd face guard, top lock him, try to bump him around a bunch. I would kind of jam and go under on any of the ghost screens that he is instead of trying to switch them. I'd be attached and physical to Joe when he's brushing and ghosting to the perimeter and then go far underneath and dare anybody else to be kind of a pull-up shooter and just say, you know what, Shea, Giddy, Jalen, whoever else is going to be handling the ball in these situations, make enough of them to beat us. Uh, To me, you win against Oklahoma City by trying to encourage them to stay out of the paint, and you can do that by going under screens and taking away their one lethal three-point shooting threat in Isaiah Joe. That's a really – I don't mean to cut you off with that. I actually – I never really – never thought of that one because I have never – I don't think I've ever seen, like, like Joe draw two to the ball and slip a screen and like, you know, Clay Thompson and just hit a little like back cut layup. So, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a really good one. Yeah. And, and look, the other part of this too, is he's a little bit slender of a frame and slender guys who are shooters and particularly younger ones. If you are physical with them, their shot can be off a little bit more. Coaches tend to lose value and patience in that you almost play Isaiah Joe off of the floor. And now you don't have to worry about that kind of specialty threat that he brings to the table. You know, a lot of times people think about scheming for, game plans as just paying attention to the best players on the floor. I think there are so many other situations. And I learned this early on in my coaching career. We were going against uh, a team that threw the ball into the post, but did not have a really good post player down there. It was just kind of what their coach did in his system. And my boss at the time said, we have to trap him. I'm like, why? He's not a really good, we can defend him one-on-one and he's never going to score on us. And he said, probably not, but we can get a turnover four times out of, out of 10 if we go in there and trap him and just turn up the space and make him be an aggressive passer. And I think that if you can key in on the right role players, you can really change and alter what a team does. Isaiah Joe stands out as the one for me for Oklahoma city, like role players. Yeah. Role players, man, Dallas Mavericks and role players. What a, I don't really know what to say about this one because it's been a revolving door. Um, of guys that Jason Kidd has tried to stick around Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving. He is searching for answers for defensive personnel right now. They've dropped several games last week, uh, particularly the the back-to-back that we talked about with the Charlotte Hornets, but they've had a great bounce-back win over Indiana on Monday. There's something off with Luka Doncic. He alluded to it in a post-game press conference that there's kind of outside of basketball stuff going on. But at the end of the day, they're dangerous because they have two of the best scorers in the universe in Luca and Kyrie, but they have no defensive personnel. And one of the reasons they went to the Western conference finals last year is because they had a top 10 defense and a real identity with a guy like Dorian Finney Smith, who was willing to be their glue guy, so to speak, that would just sacrifice his body and take on that top matchup. Where are you at with what we've seen from the Dallas Mavericks over the last eight weeks since they've traded for Kyrie Irving. Yeah. I'm going to be fully transparent here. Uh, since they traded for Kyrie Irving, I've watched 
four games where both Doncic and Irving were in the game. And all four of those games were against bottom 10 defenses. Mm. And so like, it looked beautiful, like their offense, it looked beautiful. And then it's like, but wait, they're playing the San Antonio Spurs. Okay. That makes a little, like, I've never seen a four man pick and roll run this fluently. And then I'm looking around like, okay, that's why, because three of the four guys guarding it never were drafted. (laughs) It's just like, you know, so, um, we talked about doubling down and I think if I'm the Mavericks, you, you got to look in the mirror and say, we're going to, we should double down on offense because they have a chance to have an elite postseason offense. I think with you have the two guys, not only are these like two of the best offensive players, they're two like perfectly tailored for the playoffs, offensive players, you know, mm-hmm. that's the kind of way you win offensively. Um, with those two, I think there could be like little things around the margins where maybe you want to involve both of them in the action together. Maybe have like Irving be like the screener in Spain pick and roll or run some roll and replace stuff kind of like the Kings do. Um, but I think you should, I think, I think I need to see more Christian Wood, you know, more, you, I know it's not a good idea to rely on a rookie. And I think that he's probably, he's, he's, you know, he's the flavor of the week right now, but Jaden Hardy has been awesome. Um, my guy, uh, green, but, um, so, okay. So here's some things I pulled up. Sure. Um, with Maxi Kleber on the floor, their defense is in the 50th percentile. That's not, that's not a good sign when, you know, your best, um, your best defensive player is like your only average when he's on the court, but it's still yeah. something. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. something. Best right? is a relative right. term here. Right. Yeah. So there's that. Another thing, I couldn't find any lineup data, so I'm guessing maybe they've run a couple possessions with it. But I'm curious, what what does the firepower look like on a lineup of Doncic, Irving, Christian Wood, Maxi Kleber, and um, I can't think of his first right now, but Green. It's a J. Uh, Josh Green. Yeah. Josh Green. There we go. I was going to say Jalen Green. I was going to feel bad about it, but Josh Green. So I was one. I'm curious what that looks like. If that's, and then here's the other thing. I think if I'm Jason Kidd, I'm watching some Chicago Bulls games because I think the Bulls do a really good job of they, – they're the fifth-ranked defense, I believe, right now in the NBA, but they don't have the personnel of the fifth-ranked defense. And their half-court defense is only like 12th in efficiency. But what they do is they make like so many possessions in the half-court. They dictate the pace of the game. They bog it down. They make things ugly. They're number one in frequency of half-court plays. They have the most half-court defensive possessions by percentage in the league. And inherently, half-court possessions are less efficient than transition possessions. Now, for Dallas, I think that that's something they can replicate because, I mean, they have this great half-court offense in theory. So if they can get buckets, that's automatically it's going to be harder to push the pace against them that way. And then, yeah. just you know, it's about it's about binding up the little things like, I know he gets a lot of flack for it, but it can really hurt you in transition when Luka Doncic is not getting back because he's upset about a call. I believe that he gets fouled on during all these plays, but you know, just how the game works. Like it wouldn't be any fun if they called every foul on you, Luka. So I think that's, I think it's going to be those things. It's going to be really leaning on doubling down on offense. Cleaver's got to be healthy. And then they've got to, they've got to slow the game down enough where they can at least put themselves in a favorable situation on defense. Yeah, and I keep going back with pace, right, to Christian Wood, because there's a difference between playing bigger and being 
good on defense because you have bigger guys on the floor. And whenever Christian Wood is at the floor, I just go into this instant panic attack about their defense because there are just too many guards with Kyrie and Luca on the floor that are going to cause everyone else to be in rotation. That when you add a third sieve out there, who's going to be on the perimeter, you essentially have no shot. Even if you have two really good defenders next to them. Wood at the five is so fascinating for me in offensive possessions and settings with this group. And now that Jaden Hardy has emerged as another guard that Jason Kidd can be able to trust. I wonder if we see that a little bit more, but we're, we're out of time on Dallas. So I want to ask you the the one question that that I do have kicking around about them. One game playoff environment, whether it's game seven in a series or it's in a play in. Do they have the defensive personnel or versatility to take anybody out of what they want to do? I'm just, okay. So I keep thinking about how, how impressive of a display it was against Phoenix with how they were able to kind of master their rotations on that hedging and, you know, all this stuff they were doing there. And I'm trying to think, like, how, like, I mean, conceivably, how different is this team? And lose it, like, people underestimate, like, how, like, institutional, how the institutional knowledge of a Jalen Brunson on defense, you know, he's just, he's so smart. He's like a coach's dream. I mean, his dad's a coach. I'm sure he he knows where to be at all times. And then, like, like you said, I mean, in my, my theoretical, you know, Christian Wood and Max Kleber lineup, Christian Wood's, you know, He's got he's got his own problems on defense. I don't know if he can he can do something like that. And then I think the big thing is Luka Doncic. I know mentally he's he's in a weird headspace right now. I hope everything's okay with that guy. But um, he just doesn't like. I was looking at some some clips from when they played the Clippers in the bubble season, and he just it looks like he gained some weight, man, and not in a good way. Like he he looks like I have this buddy who he he just like he drinks a lot, and you could just you could tell like he he drinks a lot, you know. And that's why I'm not saying like Luka Doncic is a drunk, but he definitely looks like he hangs out at the bar a lot and not on like in the gym, you know. So like it's going to be really hard for them to replicate what they did last postseason against the Suns, even with preparation. So I guess my answer is no. Yeah, I think Luka's best served defensively at the four, just because he can be a little bit stronger and bigger in that regard. But it doesn't give Dallas a ton of lineup versatility. I have no clue what to make of this team. I'm really scared of Kyrie and Luka just going nuclear and being able to win them a game or a couple of games. I do not see how they can sustain that over a long period of time to be able to to beat anybody just because we know they're going to get scored on a lot. Matt, you wanna, sorry, go ahead. you want to hear my, my hot take? Um, sure, what's the hot take? I think I'll say this, and I'm going to say it now, while, while both these teams are in complete opposite trajectories, but – um. I'd say Dallas fastballs got more heat on it than the Timberwolves. I still think Ooh. that. I get that. I get that. I think that it's it's definitely more proven in some regard. Uh, I just I think that their changeup is an automatic out of the park home run every time they try to throw it. So uh, there's there's no off speed there for the Mavs. That's the best baseball analogy I can come up with here. Uh, you'd mentioned that there's one last team that we know we're going to talk about. They're a game back from Dallas in the loss column. 35 and 40 right now. They've lost four in a row. It's the Utah Jazz. We will do them the due diligence of just throwing five minutes their way because I really like the way that this team has battled and competed. They're still mathematically alive. 
and Will Hardy has stolen my heart as a coach this year. Uh, they've got Lowry Markin, who's been an all-star and played at a really high level. I still don't know who else I trust on this roster, particularly in a postseason environment. But as an ode to the Utah Jazz, Matt, where, what do you want to talk about with these guys? Well, since we have five minutes, um, I'm going to say this right now. You wrote a chef's kiss article on Laurie Markin in the beginning of the year. I, I really loved the the ending. I can't remember. It was something about a pond or a river, but I just remember it really – I really like that. I'm like, man, this guy can coach and write. You, 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 know, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> no, I don't even remember that. It's one. Like, I remember oh, doing the article over a pond. But yeah, you did. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful article. Oh, thank you. you. I think if, if Lori did read it, he would be be very happy that you wrote it. Since we have the five minutes, I just wanted to say that. Um, who do I trust? I think Kessler's still got some time before I, I can say comfortably I trust him. Uh, I think Kelly Olynyk. He he like amazes me with how much he knows about basketball. Every time I watch him, like he's just like such an underrated passer for his size. He's really good at being in the right spot, but I still think he doesn't have like enough like um, feel for the game where he can um, like surpass his his physical limitations. Um, you know, Dunn's been a cool story, but he can't he can't space the floor. Tht's not spacing the floor for you. Uh, we're going to talk about this with the question you have to ask me, but I, I think if they did end up in a play-in or playoff series, like it would, it would be really bad for marketing in terms of, I think it's going to distort what like we, everything we've seen about him this season. Like, I think like the, the talking heads would probably get into some, you know, some start the, the train of like marketing is not like a playoff guy because like this, this team is currently constructed. I know that's like the intent here is they're trying to lose. Now they, they traded away their best chips, um, this team is currently constructed, though. Is it, it would be really like suboptimal for marking in in a playoff series. I think I think defenses, and we'll talk about this in a second, but defenses could really key in on him and yeah. really really make him look bad. Yeah, he's he's a great second option who's playing as the first without anybody to reliably step into that number two spot. And I know Jordan Clarkson scores a lot of points. I'm not sure this is you know sorry Nikias like this ain't no Jordan Clarkson slander, but uh, I just I really worry that they don't have enough proven firepower and reliability. What they've gotten by on the entire year is the play of Larry Markkinen having great spacing that they can afford in the half court because many of their bigs shoot it. They play Markkinen and Kelly Olenek together. They've been really crisp with a lot of their rotations and generated buy-in from guys who haven't typically been really good effort defenders to step into that role this year. They've got enough youth on their roster that those guys are, are scratching and clawing. I like what O'Shea Adbaji has brought to the table a little bit more recently. Walker Kessler, one of the most impactful rookies that we have and a legitimate rim protector this year. Guys are still testing him and figuring out that you can't really try to go over the top of, of Kessler because he's so gargantuan on the interior. But the experience really isn't there. And, you know, if there's a couple things that we know about the way the teams prepare for postseason and postseason series is that they figure out what you're trying to accomplish, your tendencies, your movement patterns. A lot of what Utah does is screening action near the sideline. And I think that those are really easy to interrupt and either trap or blitz or, or really when you're more aggressive with it, there are only so many directions you can go because if you step backwards, you're out of bounds. Uh, I, I think that teams are going to key into how often they use middle flare screens from their big men to try to get quick give and goes and reversals around the floor. Now, because they play a five out scheme, those are open for slips. If you're a little bit too aggressive trying to defend that middle or top of the floor flare, 
but teams are going to be a lot more aware of it and try to, you know, or at least not be caught off guard when the screen arrives, if you're guarding the shooter in that situation. So there are a lot of little things about the way that this team has played throughout the regular season that I think opponents are figuring out a little bit better. And as a result of that, it's not as much about keying into what they do on offense to really take them away. It's more so about some of the magic and the allure that they've had to carry them to such a a great season and defy the expectations that they had. Just that magic is wearing thin a little bit, but we are exactly out of time right there. As I pause the timer before it goes off with our five minutes here on the Utah jazz. So I'll just ask you that one question. We alluded to it earlier how would you choose to guard them in a one game play in environment? Yeah, my, um, I think this is like pretty much any, anyone's kind of default when you talk about like these really skilled offensive oriented seven footers, um, perimeter offensive seven footers. I think give them the dirt treatment until they prove to you that they can beat it. And what I mean by that is you put like a, a really athletic forward on them. And then with, the, in Utah's case, it's, it's vastly different from what they used to do with Dallas and all like the mid post stuff they would do with Dirk. I mean, they're running a bunch of off-ball actions. So, I mean, I would I would switch those, first of all. I'd switch those. Um, and then, I, yeah, just get in his grill with these really long athletic guys. I'd probably run, like, a small ball lineup, get in his grill with those really athletic guys. Um, they can afford – we talked about their spacing. The spacing is really – it's been tricky since the, um, the All-Star break because they lost a lot of shooting with Beasley and Conley. And now, like, in their starting lineup, they only have really two guys. And they're two great shooters, but only two guys really trust to hit a three-pointer. Because, you know, it's not a THT. It's not going to be done. It's not going to be Walker Kessler, of course. So you could really, like, you could really get in the gaps, make it hard for him to drive, make it hard for him to attack. Just get physical with him, you know, attack his lower body. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I, I just dirt treatment him until they prove to me that, that that doesn't work on them anymore. Yeah, see, what I would do, actually, is I would play small on marketing. I would put almost a guard, a really good guard defender, the best one that you have on him and try to hide one of my biggest guys and be more of that, that weak side spy on Dunn, hide him on THT. And like say, the Draymond, uh, yeah. Yeah, or as I keep thinking back to, um, you know, back when the Indiana Pacers and Miami Heat would do battles in the Eastern Conference Finals, the Paul George versus the Big Three in Miami, Indiana constantly would put David West or Tyler Hansborough on Shane Battia and just say, like, go stand. I, I know it's not a natural matchup for you. Go stand in the corner. Put him on Mario Chalmers at times and say, hey, he's going to go to the corner. Just stay with him and guard him there. So I have no problem with trying to do that and take your bigger or biggest guy and put him there and just want to go really small, try to undercut Lowry's dribble, chase him off the line a little bit more through any of the screening action that he comes off, and then you can switch that more comfortably when they try to invert and run some guard to guard stuff. Yeah. Just my, no, that's, a, that's a, that's a really good call. I mean, that's why, that's why they pay you the big bucks, man. That's why, yeah, that's why, that's why I make like three grand a year coaching stipend, right? That's, that's why we do it here. Uh, Matt, the Western conference is going to be crazy. I didn't put this on, on the sheet right here, but looking at the standings and looking at the teams who are, who are around, who are the two that you think will not even make it to the play in based on schedule remaining based on just how they're trending right now, upward or down, who are the teams that you think are on the outside looking in that don't get a chance to, to keep moving forward? Yeah. Um, okay. So Utah, I think we can, I mean, I think they, okay. they want to be kissed goodbye. So yeah. we're going to you know, put a pen in you, put a pin in Utah. 
okay from from a from a matt selfish perspective i'm going to give you this answer first because it's kind of funny i want it to be the thunder who don't make it because i've dedicated so much of man hours watching pelicans basketball this year that i feel like it'd be like I'd be really upset because, like, I, I have, like, all this, like, intel, like, for a potential, like, play-in matchup, playoff series where I would know, like, a lot – I wouldn't have to do as much research to prep for that because of them. And I feel like it would just go all down the drain. But um, my, my guess is if, if Zion doesn't come back or he comes back, like, last game, I, I think pa- the Pelicans will probably – and plus they're, they're going to a rough stretch right now. So I think they're going to be the team to fall out of the play-in picture. I'm going the same, actually. I got Utah and New Orleans being the two teams that are kind of on the outside looking in, just trending in that direction. And if you had to pick two to be locked into those five and six seeds to be avoiding the play-in in general, we've got Clippers, Warriors, Timberwolves, Lakers, Thunder, Mavs, two of those six to avoid the play-in. Who you got? I'm going to say this is tricky. Uh I mean, from the way we've been talking, it would be Lakers. It would be Lakers Warriors. The way that me and you kind of have been talking about these teams, I feel like. Uh, uh, actually, you know what? I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Clippers Warriors. Okay. Say Clippers Warriors. I feel like it's just it's very Los Angeles Laker like for them not to do that, like for them to be in a playing game. So I'm just gonna go um, Clippers Warriors. Hold and serve with where we are. I'm going to go Warriors Timberwolves. I think okay. that Utah is going to win enough regular season games down the stretch here to get themselves in that position. Uh, but I, I'm not betting against Golden State. That's that's in no way for me. And then the Lakers are a team that I would think uh, going to be a nightmare for one of Denver, Memphis, or Sacramento to run into. Matt, this has been an absolute pleasure. I love having you on here and, and all the work that you do. Please let the people know where can they find you? What do you have coming out soon? And the spotlight is yours, my friend. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you can find me at um, the website where I'm Pelican Debrief. Or you can find me at Our Home, SB Nation. You can find me at The Analyst or Forbes. Um, this month, actually, I've been uh, – so, you know, back in, like, school, they used to say, like, March is reading month or whatever. I decided to make this month uh, March is reading about rookies month. So I profile – I've done eight out of 10 so far. I have one more coming out tomorrow on Jaden Ivy, and then one coming out on Walker Kessler on Friday, but I've done 10 deep dives. You can find those on my Twitter at MattIsa15. That's at M-A-T-I-S-S-A-15. But that's really what I've been doing is the rookie stuff because I know from here on out it's going to be it's gonna be a lot of veteran basketball, so I wanted to enjoy the young guys while I could. No doubt about it. Uh, obviously, scouting report season, very busy for me, coming out with two, three, sometimes four or five in a single week, trying to get some stuff out there as we get ready for the playoffs at SB Nation. And you can always find me on Sunday nights with my guy Sam Fasini recording at the Game Theory Podcast. But I failed to do what I always tell myself I'm going to, which is say, make sure that you like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast, wherever you find your podcast, you can find the box and one and coach spins there, but signing off, we will see you next time.